Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt and Fraser. Sadly, Becky has lost her voice, which makes podcasting a little trickier, and we wish her a very speedy return. Now, if you cast your mind back to January, our first episode of 2023 was a chat with Hannah Jewell, who worked for Climate Emergency UK, to talk about their innovative Council Climate Action Scorecards. We said we'd love to get them back on to hear how the launch went, and so here we are. Yes, so today we'll be joined by Isaac Beaver, co-director of Climate Emergency UK, to hear about the results of the scorecards and how this might impact and influence future climate action. And as always, we strongly encourage listeners to get involved in the conversation, whether that's via X. Crack on. (laughs) (laughs) That's life. Uh, This is life now. And as ever, we strongly encourage listeners to get involved in the conversation, whether that's via X, brackets, Twitter at LocalZeroPod, or you can email in episode suggestions and queries to LocalZeroPod at gmail.com. And as you'll have heard at the very beginning, Local Zero is looking for new funding to keep it going. Now, if the pod has helped you with your work or studies, please, please do get in touch to let us know. This really helps us more than you ever might think. Okay, Fraser, <laughs> you've got your hands full, baby's in the background. Um, I, how, how have you been? How's, how's things? Oh, things have been good. You know, just the constant hum of life working from home with a, uh, a Springer Spaniel and a three-month-old baby. But, you know, that's, it's, it's a lot of fun, to yeah. be honest. How, how are things with you? Good. I've, I've, I've taken a bold step today. It's got so cold in my, uh, my upstairs study that I have, I have donned fingerless gloves. They weren't fingerless this morning. <laughs> I took an old pair and chopped the tops <laughs> of them. Um, I actually took them out of sheer embarrassment for this pod. So they're currently sitting next to me, but, um, yeah, my, my wife, um, doesn't appreciate the new look but i feel more comfortable so there we go it is brutally cold and we've got another cold week and as we said i think in the last pod um confirmation just in the last few days that energy bills are on the up again so um um, you're probably feeling the pinch too as a result yeah yeah they are and i think there's there's an interesting an interesting thing here matt actually because what we didn't know last time 
was exactly, we knew roughly what the number was going to be going up to. Energy bills are now 1,900-ish pounds, slightly over 1,900. But what we didn't pick up on that people like Citizens, Citizens Advice mm. have picked up on since is that Ofgem have slightly changed the, the assumptions that they make right, when okay. calculating the average mm. two to three bedroom household. Yeah, oh yes, yeah, I know. So, yeah. so previously, even as, as late as the beginning of this year, they were calculated based on about 2,900 kilowatt hours of electricity and about 12,000 kilowatt hours of gas. They're now calculated on let me get the let me get the number right on 2,700 kilowatts of electricity yeah. and 11,500 of gas. So the price cap for that average average household okay. that we keep talking about has gone up a little bit. But if we take the old assumptions, the assumptions we've been using throughout the whole energy crisis, actually it's a it's a little bit a little bit more. But maybe that's a reflection, you know, that people have cut back on their yeah, okay. on their energy use to try and deal with these bills right maybe that's what's feeding yeah through. and that, that is interesting and, and and on cost of living actually there's another interesting piece i saw in the paper again i think this was covered by the guardian but it was work undertaken by the energy and climate intelligence unit otherwise known as ecru that appointed to um food bills and connecting these obviously we know food has gone through the roof unfortunately mm. um and that weekly shop is is just you know um well for us anyway eye watering we've certainly looked to to cut it where we can but that is been connected not only to energy prices as you can imagine not only the growing but the transportation the storage all of that but also climate change effects that roughly and i think going back over the last 2 years so 2022 and 2023 roughly 200 pounds a year of your overall uh, food bill o- over the course of that year is attributed to climate effects. So wow. if if you say, and I think this is the piece they run with, the average f- weekly shop is you know around the hundred pound mark. There's two shops a year that you're making, you know, the equivalent cost of that are just down to climate change effects. And I think this goes back to a broader point. We we come back to time and time again is how do we make these messages land? Because I think that language there saying you're, there's two shops, a fortnight of shopping, the equivalent cost is just down to the costs of climate change. Yeah, it's such an important point. And I think it's it's one of these things, right, where this issue in particular, climate driving up costs, it's really, really easy to knock back. Oh, you know, people, people aren't worried about climate as the main thing in their life just now because cost of living is through the roof. But it's fundamentally impossible to disentangle these things, right? And making making that land, I think, can be really challenging because a lot of it still seems still seems a little bit abstract, right? It's because of these changing weather patterns or changing climate patterns, rather, uh, that have you know increased drought and heat waves, which makes it harder to grow stuff, which makes things in lower supply, which means our prices then go up. That's that's quite a few steps in the chain, but they're really really directly directly connected and invariably as well as we always know it affects those who are already struggling the most the hardest particularly as energy bills are are cranked up as well absolutely and another interesting piece and i want to give them a shout out actually the ferret a relatively small outfit but does a lot of investigative journalism really picks up issues that maybe haven't been under the spotlight really interesting point here about the legacy of mining in scotland and particularly coal mining now fraser i've probably bored you with this before but if you overlay a map of scotland's past coal workings coal mines um it's pretty much 
um, postcode for postcode, a map of the central belt and where most people reside, um, you know, where, where those uh, centers of population are. Same with the UK. And there's a, there's a crazy stat, which I don't have to hand, but it, it's, it's an incredible proportion um, that the vast majority of people in the UK live within, you know, two or three miles of a, you know, of a coal working. Now, the legacy of this, whilst we might not be working these, they're still polluting our rivers with toxic metals. And okay. the, the, the water quality of these rivers is, is terrible as a result. And this is impacting dramatically, not only on maybe our recreational use of these, also on the quality of our drinking water, but also wildlife and the, uh, you know, the, the health of these ecosystems. I just thought it was really interesting, this point about industrial heritage and history, where we think often you know, coal, coal mining is in the past, but its legacy will last for, for many decades more. And as, a, as somebody myself interested in transitions, I was really taken with that story. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, actually. I had no idea that the, the knock-on of that could, could, still be, could still be felt today. Beyond, we, yeah, we talk a lot about the social and economic impacts of, of that sort of industrial transition. But maybe that's, again, that's, a, that's another, another part of the thread that we're weaving right now, right, with this, as we're looking, taking that future look to try and stimulate new, cleaner industries across the board. I think that's that, the framing of how, we, of how we talk about this, of that kind of the legacy versus the future look, I think is a really, really important one. I don't know exactly where I'm going with this point, other than to say... It's bad. Um, <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's bad. Um, but okay, trying to make it good and positive, and, and maybe we're going to have to go on to another piece of bad news. But we want to also discuss about how we stop talking about bad news. I remember and, when this 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 segment of the show well, used to be a mix. Yeah. We used well, to deliberately it, we, try and get good and bad. We, we'll we, we'll we'll talk about good news in a moment, hopefully, because I think it's about yeah. how you maybe turn. Oh God, this awful attitude of you know making lemonade from lemons and trying to take a bad news story and and, and repurpose it. So. As we speak, the BBC News is covering on its front page the issue of COP28, uh, United Arab Emirates hosting this, and their suggestion from leaked documents that they've they've had hold of that um, UAE and other countries are using COP28 potentially as a platform for securing um, more hydrocarbon contracts and basically hawking for business. Now, this won't be the first time somebody has asked the question about whether it's uh, the most appropriate place to hold a climate conference is in one of the world's centres of oil and gas, um, hydrocarbon capitals of, of the world. Um, the hope, I think, if one was to spin this in a positive light, is that if, if you can bring climate action there, you can bring it anywhere. Mm -hmm. But this is a real hammer blow to the whole process of COPs, and we've kind of touched upon this before. But what's your take on this? Like, How do we... Turning it from a bad news into a good news story, what do we do about this? Because we, for me, <laughs> we've got to call it out what it is, assuming you know the information it stands stands to scrutiny. Yeah, it's it's incredibly frustrating, but it's not necessarily new, right? There was a lot of a lot of controversy, I guess, with with COP being where it is this year. But when we were on the inside of it when it came to Glasgow mm. two years ago, COP twenty six, at that point, and I'm fairly confident at various COPs before. The fossil fuel lobby writ large are by far and away the the most yeah. represented yeah. contingent of of delegates at, at just about any cop and that's because you know that's it's a direct threat to the industry that they yeah. lead and work in and make a, a ton of money off of so that's that's 
I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, to some I'm, I'm giggling because I think, is, is, are you t- picking up the mantle of turning this into a good news story by saying it's not as bad as it sounds because we've done it at the other cops? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> basically. No, no, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. this is what we, we always, always do. do. Don't worry, it's just what we do. <laughs> no, it's it's not that. It's rather, I think it's, it's being sure that we're going into this eyes open, right? This isn't necessarily shocking and scandalous. However, I think in terms of spinning it, the framing of this, people who pay attention to cops and people who sort of hear about cops in passing in the news in that couple of weeks a year while it's on understand the understand the scandal of that and the hypocrisy of that in the same way that you're inclined to understand the scandal of yeah. Shell and BP recording that they're making more money than ever before while you yeah. can't afford your energy bills. So while I think it's inherently a bad thing when you're trying to negotiate a quite radical climate action as the clock sort of ticks and ticks faster and faster, it feels like, for the public perception of that, for the people who actually pay attention, now how many people that is is another question. But I think people understand the, the issue with that, and it's 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 something that um, is important to turn any sort of anger or frustration with it into into something more positive. I guess. What do you think, Matt? Well, I agree with everything you've said. I think also buried here is a good news story in that it, it is such a big bad news story. It's on the front page of the BBC News. This is this has been deemed you know, in the public interest. This is an objective perspective, at least I'm assuming that's the editorial stance on this. And that the BBC News is not clearly, and we know this is not just just read, you know, across Britain. But this is a, a global news platform, and here we are. This is this is effectively being presented as a, as a, a sort of morally objective sense, an outrage. Um, mm-hmm. And and that for me is a good news story, particularly where we're coming from in the last couple of months in the UK, where there's you know we, we've had a government which has been in certain circumstances, and, and if we take oil and gas as an example, licensing has been stepping back. Yet here we are, we have our sort of a, a mirror being held to to the nation's psyche and, and 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 own kind of moral compass. I do think that's important. Yeah, that hold, holding up a mirror, I think, is an important one, and I think holding holding cop organizers in the entire process to account in a way that probably hasn't happened before i agree i think that's really really important and i think on one hand there'll be a frustration of you know the big the big committee that's the the big event that's designed to fix all that all our climate problems and come to these new agreements is being dominated by fossil fuel companies who are just trying to serve their own interests Mm -hmm. but if that outrage can be leveraged into something more positive i.e this can't go on at future cops. This can't be the way that we do climate decision yeah. making and convening. Then maybe the, that's a the danger is apathy, I guess. So you know, yeah, people read yeah. it, go, oh well, there we, here we go again. You know, again in the context of of what we're hearing in the you know COVID inquiry and uh, this and corruption here, whether it be you know contracts for PPE, th- th- these are things we're hearing, and I think there's a sense where people just look at this, and go, well, of course they're doing it. That's that's to be expected and and then i think there then becomes a disconnect between your sort of everyday citizen and the powers that be and and this fuels a distrust now we're actually going to talk about councils in a minute but we've we've touched upon this before and if you look at um, there's various polling from, from from different sources that public faith in government at different levels in um and i include i don't just mean national i i go all the way down to local but i also go up 
to intergovernmental parties. Mm-hmm. I think there is certainly in the UK this, this is this is low, um, and I do, I do worry about that because we we do need. We heard this from Chris Stark at one of the earlier episodes. We need leadership. Now it, you can't be you you can't be primed and ready to be led unless you trust in that leader and that leadership. So um, we we have we do have an issue here. We do, we definitely do, and I think it's again, it's not necessarily new, but it's certainly snowballed in the in the last few years. I would say, um, I am someone who, in my occasional free time, frequents the the old man pubs around around Forfar around my so. area, and that it, it's turned from I, I guess the kind of the 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 outrage putting the world to rights is certainly yeah. hotter than it has been before. But I think in in that in that instance where trust is so low in government, you still need leadership as a catalyst, right? That's step one to building back that trust is going, you know what, we're going to do something and then get on and actually do it. But I think it also means that no no pressure to yourself or to listeners, but it also means that our role in this and the role of people who care about this but aren't government is more important than it has been before as well. That's not a grandiose, we're we're going to save the planet. But that well, is that we need to get sleeves rolled up because the people who are supposed to be doing this aren't necessarily yeah. trusted to to get it done. Here, here, and the reason I say that I think that's a really important point is that people need to see the future. They need to be presented with a vision, a positive vision of of what to do. And you know, again, I think I mentioned in the before we started recording. You know, my my daughter, who's only six years old, is now acutely aware of climate change and will often be looking me to make her feel better about the actions that we're taking that we're not just sort of giving up and all. and so really she's looking to me for leadership and I you know and I, I do whilst I'm trying to deal with the facts I don't want to freak around scare her but I, I, I also part of that fact is that I am doing something and there are other people out there who I know are working very hard on this so your point about leadership being various different levels is is absolutely spot on. And that's why I think today's episode about local councils is so critical. Climate action scorecards, you and I have had a little look and we'll hear more, but it does feel like some councils are, are doing more than others. And there's quite a lot in the category of C minus, <laughs> if, if you're being <laughs> optimistic. And I'm not sure there's anybody's a, coming away with an A star yet, but... Um, yeah, and there's a lot of contravening reasons for that. So, and you and I have talked about council funding and and support. It's a real murky picture, but they need to be supported to do this. But you know, as as I say, the, the work that climate emergency are doing really important to to flag not only where work needs to be done, but also success stories. And there are some success stories here. And what I would like to hear a bit more is about where the successes lie and, and how we can see those replicated across the UK. So, I think it'd be a good time to bring them in. Let's do it. My name is Isaac Bevor, and I'm the co-director of Climate Emergency UK. Welcome, Isaac. I think this is one of the few times we've done this where we've had the same organisation back to update us on a really, really interesting project, which is about the Climate Emergency UK's climate action or plan scorecards. And we heard from Hannah Jewell, then the group's campaigns and policy officer, and we heard all about the climate plan scorecards. So all of these councils are looking forward about the types of changes they want to make uh, to, to their to their respective council areas. Now, you've crunched the data. Before we get into that, just a few words for our listeners about who Climate Emergency UK are and what they're set up to do. Yeah, thanks so much, Matt and um, and Fraser as well for having us back. Uh, we really appreciate um, being on the podcast and it's, it's really great to be here and to share the update with um, your listeners as well. 
So who who is Climate Emergency UK and what do we do? We we were founded in 2019 um, and we, we were founded by Councillor Kevin Freyer, who at the time was looking to encourage councils to declare climate emergencies. And we did that by publishing a model motion of climate emergencies and also kind of collating all those councils that had done it and sharing sharing those councils that had done it. Then we went on to work with My Society, who uh, who are our key partners and continue to be our key partners to create the Climate Action Plan Explorer, which is a database of all climate action plans um, from across the UK and also includes information such as their net zero targets as um, well. And then obviously we moved on to create the um, scorecards project, which I'm here to talk a bit about today. Um, and our tagline that we've kind of developed as we've developed a strategy over this uh, period of time is we look into equip the council climate movement with the information and guidance needed for structural change and accelerating the work of local campaigns for climate action. So we really see ourselves as sitting at the intersection between councils and residents. So kind of collating that information on council and local climate action and making it easier for both councils and residents to understand and then push for the adoption of that best practice. So so on that, Isaac, why why is it so important for us to be focusing at the local level and on this on this council action? So it, we, we have numerous different um, resources and data points that why we think the local level and, and council action is the most important thing or one of the most important things to focus on. It's partly because the Climate Change Committee said that local authorities have powers or influence over a third of UK emissions in their locality. And actually um, further studies from then have actually said that it could be up to um, 80% of emissions are under the powers or influence of local authorities in the UK. So without local authorities doing their utmost to help um, create the kind of uh, low carbon communities that we need to create, we're not going to get there without local authorities all pushing and, and in the same direction. We're not we're not going to be able to meet our national net zero targets and we're not going to be able to you know, have a livable planet to uh, live on. The, the other thing is, is that 83% of UK council have declared a climate emergency since 2019. And that's that shows that there is some movement towards um, councils are interested in taking this action and they are interested in basically taking local climate action. There is there is motivation for them to do that. And the fact that, you know, um, change can happen locally faster. So local authorities are kind of at the coalface, um, pardon the pun, <laughs> um, of um, net of pushing forward the most progressive planning policy in in this country so mm. that's people like Leeds City Council, Lancaster and um, Bath and North East Somerset and um, Cornwall who are adopting higher efficiency standards yeah. and um, stronger net zero operational standards in new builds than the government is doing so that change can happen locally and faster than the government which can then lead to national change and um, it's the number of um, you know the influence and power that local authorities have to drive down emissions in their area and the fact that they've already shown that motivation and then finally from is actually the Skidmore review it quoted this and said there's plenty of regional local and community will to act on net zero but too often um, the national government gets in the way and that's kind of one of the key things that we think as well that that often to unlock local climate action across the UK we need also the UK government to get on board with and um, pushing this forward. I guess just is, is the mantra here a little bit if you can't fix what you don't measure and, and maybe just just a quick note that before I go to the Skidmore review big kind of a systematic review if you will of policies and, and their fitness for net zero so so to hear the importance of local zero uh, sorry <laughs> local zero we weren't in it of local authorities was important but yeah so the me- measuring what you you know measurements to fix is that kind of the mantra 
absolutely that's exactly what we think you, you you yeah you can't change what you don't measure basically and our what we're trying to do with the scorecards is provide that best practice and that, that compilation of best practice while also providing the accountability so that councils are held accountable to try and adopt that best practice which other councils are already leading and pushing forward that's that's exactly what we what we think yeah and like any good sequel this follows on from an absolute blockbuster which was the climate action um sorry climate plan scorecards have i got that right um that's right yeah so so that again i'm trying to rack my brains because we're going back basically two years to cop 26 i know that because we're on cop 28 it's um quite helpful so back at cop 26 with the focus on it being in, in glasgow and in the uk many of many of these councils came out i mean you mentioned you know 80 plus percent many of them came out during that window to say yep we're committed to net zero your initial study was about right which councils have delivered robust plans in terms of tackling net zero and we won't rehash that because it's all in a, all in that episode i mentioned but really, this process is different. You're looking at actually the progress they've made up to this date. So, so from from when? What's your kind of time horizon here? Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you said it's like all good sequels. It made me it immediately made me think of um, uh, Shrek Two being better than Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, it, it is true. Yeah, <laughs> and hopefully the um, action scorecards is is like building on the plan scorecards, as you said. So. What we have looked at in the um, action scorecards is from 2019 onwards. Okay. Um, some of our questions don't quite fit into that. So, you know, if um, Nottingham introduced their workplace parking levy over a decade ago, um, they still have a workplace parking levy. So when we mark them in the action scorecards, when the question says, does the council have a workplace parking levy, Nottingham score positively, even though they've obviously had it longer than before 2019. Yeah, okay. But for the majority of so that was like a current thing of how if they have one but um what we were looking at and what we we're asking for is you know have they retrofitted a uh, significant council buildings from 2019 up until 2023 so recognizing that you know some of these projects are quite big projects and take a few years um so yeah over that four-year period for the first action scorecards so so that would be i guess towards the back end of Theresa may's premiership and i'm trying to remember whether it was probably from the 2019 I get confused with general election, but this was um, this was in the last year of her premiership, so pre Boris Johnson, and so yes. I, I say that because that's important context, I think, for the types of policy environment that these councils were in then versus where they are four years yeah. later. Yeah, hundred percent, and and um, that is really important context, and I I can I was struggling as well to think that far back, given how many um, prime ministers and, yeah. and different leaders we've had over the past four years. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 also important to recognise that Bristol being the first council to declare climate emergency was in late 2018. And mm. so we chose the start of 2019 being from when the majority of councils actually declared climate emergencies was in. That was where the big bulk happened in 2019. So that's why we went from that um, date as well. Uh, what What's the method for actually going out and bringing all that information together? What data do you use and, and how do you then yeah, so, uh, compile um, those ratings? We use the same three stage process that we kind of that we created during the plan scorecards. So that is um, the first mark, the right of reply and then the audit. And what this is one of the, the what's special about the scorecards is that it's 
probably one of the largest citizen data projects in the UK. It's definitely one of the largest climate citizen data projects in the UK. So we actually go out and we ask um, volunteers to come in the first mark and help us collate all the information mm. on the um, volunteer marked questions. And we actually had, and also process all the freedom information requests we um, we also sent to council. So I'll go through this like three stage bit and I'll talk about where we um, got the data from. So we had over 200 volunteers actually help us process that information in the first mark and help us process the freedom of information requests as well. And that's, it blows us away. Um, in the pl plan scorecards, we had about 125 volunteers. And this time we thought we needed 200, but we didn't think we'd actually get there. But we actually got over 200 people who were willing to do the very unsexy desktop research work of trawling council websites, trawling council minutes, meetings, documents to try and collate this information. And that first mark is, is effectively doing a huge, um, almost crowdfunder way of putting all that data together to to um, for the questions that we're asking. We um, then send the first mark to councils, so we in the right of reply, and that's where we, as I said, send the councils their first mark and give them the ability to provide feedback or challenge to any of that first mark. And and again, we were blown away by the interaction and that we had with councils this year, just to give some context in the plan scorecards, almost 50% of councils with climate action plans responded. Obviously, we didn't expect councils that didn't have climate action plans to respond to us in those. But this year, we actually had 74% of all UK councils um, respond in the right of reply, which is unbelievable to think that three quarters of councils were, were actually mm. filling this information in and, and, and coming yeah. back to us. And yeah. It's a positive sign. shows. Yeah, yeah, I'm, that's quite I'm incredible, pretty, actually. Yeah, really positive sign for us, yeah. and we couldn't believe it. We had a we had a target of fifty percent, and then with a, with yeah. a goal in a few years' time that it would be eighty percent. And then when we saw, it, we were just like, "This is incredible for us." Um, and then we go through the audit, where it's a much smaller team of already experienced volunteers and staff that look at that first mark, look at the right of reply, and actually award the final um, marks based on that. So the, the audit is where the final marks are, are given. And we go through that three-stage process to um, ensure accuracy and consistency of marking as well. The Where we get the data from, so it's 91 questions in the action scorecards um, across seven different sections. And where we get that data from is three different sources. So two-thirds of those 91 questions, so roughly about 66, um, are marked answered via, um, via the volunteer research. And so it's the vast majority of questions that are answered by volunteer research. And then of the final thirds, we have two major data sources. As I said, one of those data sources is freedom information requests. We sent close to 4,000 wow. freedom information requests to councils all across the UK and obviously had to process all of those responses as well. Um, and then we... Um, uh, the final uh, way we get information is is what we call national data. And that is either from the national government, so the UK government and some of the devolved governments, whether that's data they publish, such as on um, recycling rates or the average EPC um, rating of, of homes in the area, or it's from national campaign organisations that already collate that data, such as 20 is Plenty, who already um, collate the information on local authorities that have 20 mile an hour speed limits as their default, or um, Pesticide Action Network, who um, you know 
collate the data on which local authorities have stopped using pesticides across their whole area, not just in their parks. And, you know, for example, UK Divest, who um, collate all the information on which councils have passed divestment motions and which pension funds have actually divested from fossil fuels. So those are the three major data sources that we use in the action scorecards. Very good. So you've crunched the data and a lot of it. I mean, wow, 4,000 yes. FOIs. That that deserves some kind of a medal. Yeah. Um, what- <laughs> Thank you. And, and the results are all out there. They're, they're, we'll put them in the show notes. They're all there to be accessed. And I think you said maybe a, a report might be forthcoming that kind of synthesizes some of these results. So they're, they're pretty fresh. Um, yeah. What, what, what yeah. to your eyes, are some of the key findings? So both, I guess, um, some things you might have expected, some things which were unexpected, but also maybe if we can dig in a little bit into some of the good news stories and, and maybe not so good news stories and things we, we need to fix. There's so much data available. So yeah, I would encourage people to go out and look at the councilclimatescorecards.uk and, and follow that link in, in the um, the podcast notes and, and look at your own council and find the individual questions where they do score positively and then obviously don't score positively as well. The the key kind of headlines were that councils generally score quite low. Um, the average score across all different council types um, was a, a 32%. So that is quite low in terms of their, their overall score. And, and Isaac, I'm going to, I'm just going to pause you there because, and this is me, me being a pedantic academic, um, but when you say percent, I think the way that I found it in, intuitive was to think if I'm sitting a test and of those 91 questions, if I, if I was doing something climate positive, I would get, um, you know, a mark or as in the methodology would have weightings for those marks. But in effect, if you, if I'm scoring 33% out of, you know, out of a hundred, obviously um, there's two thirds of the things I could be doing. I'm not as a council, but a third of the things I'm, I am doing. Is yeah. that, is that about, is that about right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that's a good, a good summary. And um, yeah, no, that is exactly it. Um, and, and to kind of uh, to back that up, only 41 councils, um, again, across our different lists, and I'll explain about the different lists in a second, only 41 councils actually scored above 50%. So you can see that a lot of councils are scoring around that a third mark on that average. The, the, so that, that's, but what, what we found, I'll just, I'll just explain this. What we found was there were councils that scored above 80% in certain sections. So while a council like Leeds may have um, scored below 50% overall, actually they had one of the strongest local plans in the country, so their planning policies, and they scored 92% in the planning section because their local plan was so strong. And you saw that, and that as we were going through the marking process, we thought this might be the case, that councils would generally score low because they, they weren't getting the points across the board, but in certain sections, councils were scoring really high. And so there are areas where councils are across in every single section where councils are scoring pretty high but across the board in all of our when you add up all of those percentage um, scores in all of those different sections they're generally scoring mm. low um, so uh, just to say about our different lists we split councils out by council type so there's single tier district county council um, northern line and combined authorities and we do that because obviously a county council has different powers compared to a district council and so a district council is not marked against so many questions in transport and a county council is not marked against so many questions in planning because a district council is a planning authority and a county council is a transport one in the two-tier system of England. Um, so that that's that's the overall picture of like councils are generally scoring ro- uh, quite low but 
there were also some really interesting developments when you d- dug a little deeper in terms of some of the trends. So there in terms of political control um, and also in terms of their actually their scores in, in the plans uh, scorecards. So of the 41, 41 councils that scored 50% or above in the council climate action scorecards, the average score in the plan scorecards was 54%. And then if you looked at the councils that scored 20% or below, which was 60 councils, 32 of those 60 did not have a climate action plan when if in the plan scorecards. 16 of those 60 scored below 33% in the plan scorecards. And so you can see that um, 48 of the 60 councils that scored 20% or below in the action scorecards didn't have a climate action plan or score below right. one third in the plan scorecards. And so there, there was a strong correlation between their scores in the plan scorecards and then how well they had scored in the action scorecards if they were of the higher. And, and Plans mean prizes in essence so that that that's good news i, I bet you were relieved to have seen that result actually <laughs> yeah uh, uh, yeah a little bit we we didn't know that and uh, genuinely didn't know this until we got the results and we're like okay maybe we should do some analysis of the top and bottom scoring councils and see how it is and we were we were like okay this is really good to see that. and it's also really heartening as well to see for, for campaigners who you know they've pushed councils residents and campaigners have pushed councils to be like we need a climate plan we need a strategy we need it to be as strong as possible and and it's really heartening that those things are really important, and also for the officers mm. that put you know a lot of time and effort into making some of those plans as strong as possible. There's a lot of time time and effort that goes into creating those plans, and it, it is worthwhile. It is good to have a strong climate a climate plan because it does translate. It, the general trend is that it translates into stronger action. The the other thing as well, just to talk a little bit about yeah. political control of of councils, is that. Of the of the council score fifty percent or more in the action scorecards, twenty six. Um, so the four of the forty one councils, twenty six of those are currently Labour run councils. Six are in no overall control. Five are Conservative, two are Lib Dem, and two of those council run by independents. Of the sixty that score below twenty percent, sixteen are currently Conservative run councils. Thirty one are in no overall control. Eight are Labour, one is Lib Dem, three are run by independents. And then the final one is the Northeast Combined Authority, which actually is a, a non-mayoral authority, so fits in a weird space um, in terms of political control. Isaac, yeah, j- just to just to summarise that in clear terms, uh, are you saying there are clear political dividing lines between councils that basically had delivered more or less action? I don't know if I'd, I'd say there's clear, clear, really clear political dividing lines because there are councils from across the political spectrum that are high scoring as well as um, low scoring. But there is a general trend that if they are Labour-run councils, no overall control councils, then they're more likely to um, be a higher scoring council. And there's a general trend, again, that if they are lower scoring council, then they are, again, either in, they are like a Conservative-run council. So there is there is a trend, but there are Conservative-run councils that have scored over 50%, which is really good to see. And there are Labour councils that have also scored below twenty percent as well, which is obviously yeah. unfortunate. Um, that is, that's a positive, a positive sign. I, I wonder, yeah. Isaac, were there any beyond the the political trends? Yeah, were there any social or economic ones that you identified? Yeah, so that's something that we're actually looking to pull out in our report that um, Matt referenced next year. So we're going to be- release a research report with our um, partners, um, research partners and thesis next year, looking at things like these overall general trends, including political control, um, including uh, things like 
if the council has a, a, a cabinet lead for net zero and for climate, do they score better overall? Looking at things like the index of multiple deprivation and whether there's a general trend towards a higher scoring council and then being less deprived. So I'll have to wait until next year in that research report coming out. Maybe there'll be a part three. And it, Trilogy, maybe there be, needs to be. <laughs> yeah, we'll hold you not to quite it. as good. <laughs> Go but, full uh, Rocky. But, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but um, but uh, but it would be really interesting to look at some of that information because there was a trend and it was by Lancaster University and I think Blackpool Council that looked at this that showed that um, the IMD scores, so if a community was more deprived, they, would, they were scoring lower in the planned scorecards. There was a trend identified in the planned scorecards that showed that. And it is likely that that trend will reappear in the action scorecards too, because if you look at the regional trends in England, the lowest scoring region is the northeast at twenty six percent, and the highest well, scoring and, regions and, and Isaac, are um, actually London and the southwest. J- just on that, because we we did we gave a little preview of the highest and lowest scoring in, in, before we came in here, because I know you kindly shared some of these numbers. I, I did note that Northern Ireland was yeah. was actually lower than Northeast. Is or is that a different type? Yes, yeah, in terms of nation, uh, okay. Yeah. So, so within England, Northeast was the the lowest scoring yeah. council. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. I, I wonder there, and I'm going to maybe look back to Fraser here as well. But um, a lot of Fraser's research um, was looked at the, I guess, how lower income communities start to tackle the, the climate change issue and Fraser's been very vocal and uh, eloquently so I might add about saying well it shouldn't it's not just a kind of middle class issue it, climate change affects everybody and it affects that the poorest the most so it is a, it is a little frustrating to hear that the, the the more deprived council boroughs were maybe performing uh, less well, but it also scans that maybe they've got more issues that they've got to channel their resources into, you know, and that's just sort of fundamental, you know, doing more with less. And we know with less because depending on your your source, we know these councils have been in real terms been cut year on year since 2010. So yeah, I, I might be a bit early and it might be for the trilogy, but is there anything you, you might be able to say to that? Or, or is it watch yeah. this space? So, yeah, it's a bit watch this space, but there is a really interesting example of this, I think. And it comes back to the, you know, so it's not just about the tax base of the residents, but it's also about the amount of development that councils can afford to have and, and how much they can charge developers to bring in money into the council to be able to fill the coffers and therefore run these projects. And it also then depends on how many staff they're able to hire, because one of the biggest blockers to climate action is the government's. Um, funding pots, the fact they're competitive, they're short term Mm. and they're limited. And one way this is really highlighted, and this is great work, and I'm not saying this is, (laughs) but it shows the disparity. Manchester City Council have an average EPC rating of their council homes of EPCC or above. And I know EPCs aren't EPCs. So so energy performance certificates for the uninitiated. Yep. Energy performance certificates, yeah, yeah. So energy performance certificate of C or above, which shows that there's a decent level of energy efficiency. So of their council homes, Manchester City Council um, are at 97% of their council homes reaching energy performance certificate of C or above, which is really good. However, not that far away, Mansfield, which is a smaller district council, it's only 2% of their council homes reach EPCC or above and Manchester City Council obviously will have areas of deprivation within it 
that are generally a richer and bigger council because of the number of residents as well, but also because of the amount of money they might be able to pull in from new development mm. compared to Mansfield, which is going to be a much smaller council, have a much smaller uh, tax base, and maybe in terms of businesses as well, and, and also in terms of development. And what this ends up leading to is some councils are able to bid better for the competitive funding rounds. And once you win a competitive funding bid, you're then more likely to win it again because you have the team in place that's able to refund itself. And that's how it plays out. And so these areas which are more deprived and exactly and have these issues ongoing just continue to see that partly because the government's competitive funding process kind of it actually enforces it in a sense, I think. I think we had a lot of these conversations around the prospering from the energy revolution when you're thinking about how do you make it so that local authorities can lead their own big ambitious energy projects? Like, well, it's one thing to do it in a Bristol or an Oxford, but it's another thing to, to do it in those smaller areas, more deprived areas where uh, where austerity has hammered them maybe that bit more over the years where the capacity and resource isn't there. And that, I guess, Isaac, that, that cumulative sort of inequity between local authorities is definitely something that that plays out right yeah 100 percent. yeah it, it's a it's a major it's a it's a major major problem and 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 this government unfortunately the national government the uk government at least is is um which obviously deals with english authorities isn't looking to to resolve that in any way isn't looking to deal with that they they talk about leveling up um but uh looking like they're going to continue to cut council's um budgets given the yeah, real statement yeah and they talk about, you know, the, the funding situation. And, and yet, honestly, I've been working in the sector now for about three years. And in that three years, in, in the UK at least, that everyone has said that we need to end short-term competitive funding um, allocations that entrench inequality, <laughs> that stop councils taking this action and stop sharing a best practice because it's basically competition between councils. And we are still at the process where new funding pots are just there and it's really frustrating. And a lot of it's to build stuff, not for people to operationalize what you build. And, and we, 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 this is something we come up against all the time. I wanted to just move on to a slightly different uh, question, which are, are trends with regards to not just geography, but sectoral trends. I just wanted to get your sense of where maybe progress is happening, um, where it isn't, and, and any, any why, you know, to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, just to say for the benefit of the listeners there's seven sections that we have in the action scorecards and it's it's actually one of the really special things about the scorecards is that we don't just mark the really simple things like the actions we look at the governance structures we look at whether the net zero is a priority within the corporate plan for example we're not just looking at if they have like x number of school streets it's a holistic assessment of everything the council is doing and those seven sections are transport and buildings and heatings waste reduction and food and biodiversity collaboration engagement planning and governance and finance and that is actually the first time i said all seven in directly about home to pause and, and think about which ones they were <laughs> so yes of those sections there are councils that score above 80 percent in all of those sections bar governance and finance and transport so the section the areas where they are performing generally worse across all UK councils is governance and finance and uh, transport. Those are sections. In every other section, um, they score, uh, some councils score above 80%. Some of that reasons might be because transport actually includes some negatively scored questions. So this is another thing that's new in the action scorecards. We have some questions which are negatively mm. scored because they have 
a negative effect on emissions. So, for example, we negatively score councils if they had expanded uh, their local airport because they're the planning authority or they had um, built new roads if they're the transport authority or they had approved yeah. new um, coal mines or oil drilling such as Surrey County Council and so in transport we have some negative questions a negative question negatively scored questions sorry around um, air quality and also but also around um, road building and there were a lot of councils that actually have continued to obviously expand and build road capacity which will have a negative effect on um, emissions. And so it's one of those areas why they're scoring lower in transport is probably one of the areas where they're most likely to continue to take action, which is actually um, harming the harming emission, like sending emissions up and harming the environment. In terms of governance and finance, I, I'm I'm not I'm not actually sure why um, that that is one of the lowest scores question. It's potentially one of the harder ones, but it's also one of the areas where councils have, have generally looked to um, create some of the impacts. So, you know, councils that are already committed are putting it in their net, uh, in their corporate plan, but maybe we're not seeing enough of that. We're not seeing enough councils that are looking at the net zero target and going, this has to go in, in, our, in our corporate priorities. Um, you know, we're looking um, at on in the procurement questions where councils in, their pl- in the plan scorecards, loads of them said, we uh, are going to embed climate within um, the you know within our procurement strategies because it's the, one of the areas we can have the biggest impact. Again, it seems that we're not seeing that translate into actual action. But obviously, there are quite a few councils that are doing that that procurement stuff. And so on the website, you can see which council scored four marks. So yeah, there's it's a really interesting why why transport uh, is scoring lower probably because of those negatively scored questions why governance is i think it's less clear because i think that's the area where councils can sort themselves out the quickest like they can implement new decision making processes they can list sustainability implications or climate implications within all of their meeting minutes and and have them there listed so at least councillors know the impact of the decisions they're making they should be putting it in their corporate plan in their medium term financial plans these are the areas where you know, if councils are serious about embedding climate across their functions, that's where they're putting it because they they realise it's mm-hmm. one of their priorities. But, but yeah. potentially, unfortunately, we're not seeing enough of that. That's that's really useful, actually, Isaac. That's because that's very tangible. It's a very specific thing that 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 could be implemented in a really clear way to go about it. I guess on that, on some of those lessons, have you had feedback from councils around how these scorecards are helping or or might help them going forward? Yeah, yeah. So we we have had that. We have we're start or we're starting to have feedback from councils. We have obviously had a lot of engagement in the past month with campaigners and councils <laughs> contacting us um, about what the scorecards mean, whether we can come and talk to them. Um, some of the it kind of shows some of the impact as well. We've been invited not just you know to speak on on podcasts like these, which is really amazing opportunities, but also at the county council network conference, at the independent councils annual conference, and and other webinars and, and etc. So people seem to be really interested in these scores, and that's and that's great. We're fast running out of time, Isaac. I, you get the impression that Fraser and I could chat about this at length, almost indefinitely. Um, but I do want to just end on this one question: If you had one ask. On the basis of the work that you've done and the findings you're seeing, what, what would it be? Can, can I do uh, one ask to different people <laughs> or different types of people? Would that be you, okay? Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, that's the same thing in a different way, by all means. Yeah, I like that. 
Cool. Uh, well, obviously, to the I kind of talked about this before, but to the central um, government, the UK government, Scot- Scottish governments, etc., be ending the short-term competitive funding pots and also this disparate funding pots. There's currently around ten to thirteen funding pots that are somehow linked to local mm-hmm. climate action that local authorities have to individually bid for if they want to get that. So there is um there's that that would be to the kind of central government i think to campaigners and to councils it would be you know look at the scorecards try and understand some of the things where your councils aren't performing as highly and look at those councils that are performing better in those areas and just copy and paste you know leads planning policies around energy efficiency are good Cornwall's planning policies, Bath and North East Somerset planning policies, they are good. You do not need to rework the wheel. Just look at what they're doing and transfer it over. We know school streets work. We know they have a positive impact on people walking to schools. This is about making making them safer, qu- quieter streets for kids, yeah, exactly. basically. Yeah. And, and we know those projects work. So why does Manchester only have seven? Like what we can we can do better. We we can look at the impact it's having in places like London and take that to our other urban cities. But also, let's go further. Our market towns, Luton, my hometown, school streets can easily work there. Yeah, there's something here about saying, look, this can be done. You should be doing this. This can be done. Um, and then on the other hand, it's like, why are you not doing this? And I feel this data is critical to beginning both of those discussions. So Isaac, we, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much. And before before we let you go, um, just, I guess, a plea, the various people who listen to this who are uh, data bods and like to crunch, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> numerical, qualitative data, whatever, um, I noted on your website, you do actually have, um, you can provide access to that data. I think there's a cost associated with that, but I'm guessing the more brains on this, the better, no? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, we'll make sure we put a link into that too. But until then, Isaac, thank you for your time. Very interesting. We'll have you back soon. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Local Zero. The number one way you can help this pod is to share it with someone you think might like it. So if there are any other climate change or energy geeks out there that you think would like Local Zero, why don't you recommend us? And if you're still listening right now, first of all, well done. But please take two seconds to rate and review us on wherever you get your podcast. This helps us reach new listeners and climb the podcast charts. Let's keep local energy firmly in the public agenda. Yep, and if you are still on X, Twitter, which I must admit I'm not, uh, you can tweet your thoughts to us at Local Zero Pod, which I do monitor, so I guess I am on it. Uh, we also love our emails from listeners, localzeropod at gmail.com, and soon we will be on Blue Sky, um, and we'll get the info to you for that shortly. But for now, thank you, and goodbye.